lot in that section of Romans, a lot that comes to bear on our section of Scripture that we're looking at, which will, uh, if you turn with me to that, it's the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8 in the Gospel of John. Last week, we looked at Jesus' teaching in the feast, and this comes on the heels of that. I don't know if many of you have seen the play Camelot. Not the Monty Python spoof, but the actual play Camelot. There's a, a famous dilemma that most of us know about that King Arthur faces in that play. If, if you know the play, you know that uh, Mordred, that schemer, has caught Queen Guinevere and Arthur's main friend at the round table, Lancelot, in an adulterous relationship together. And while Lancelot escapes out into the wilderness, Guinevere is not so fortunate. She is caught and she stands trial and is found guilty and sentenced to death by burning at the stake. As the day of the execution nears, people come from miles around with one question on their mind. Would the king let Guinevere die? The evil Mordred taunts King Arthur, if you've seen it or if you know of it. She taunts him by saying, Arthur, what a magnificent dilemma. Let her die, your life is over. Let her live, your life's a fraud. Which will it be, Arthur? Do you kill the queen or kill the law? That's the dilemma that the Pharisees put Jesus in in our text today. Does Jesus kill the woman or does he kill the law? Look with me, starting in verse 53 of chapter 7. It says, each went to his own home. That's the end of the Feast of Tabernacles and of teaching there. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, the day after the Feast of Tabernacles, he appeared again at the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach him. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, the law of Moses commands us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Before we proceed and look at this text more closely, we have to deal with the elephant in the room, And that is, in most of your Bibles, you have a little blip, either at the bottom or even in between verses 52 and 53, that says that some early manuscripts don't have this section of Scripture in them. That means that the the bits of parchment that we have that are earliest omit this. So, is this part of Scripture Or isn't this part of Scripture? 
Each pastor kind of has to make his own decision as to whether to preach on this text or not. But I agree with what James Boyce says. This is my personal opinion. That is, this is probably a genuine incident, but probably was not written by the Apostle John, was not included. But I've decided to preach on it anyway, and I want to give you my two reasons. First, I find it very consistent. I find this story very consistent with the rhythm of John's gospel. And what I mean by rhythm is that usually there's an incident, and then Jesus teaches on the incident. An incident, and then John teaches on the incident. We see this rhythm throughout the text so far. Jesus clears the temple, and then he teaches Nicodemus. The Samar- he has an encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well, and then he teaches on evangelism. He has that, that healing at the pool, and then he has the testimony about himself. And then, just as we read, he has the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, and then you have the bread of life discourse. And so we have here, we have this incident with this woman, this adulteress. And as we see, we'll see next week with the sermon, we have the whole... Uh, testimony about himself and him claiming to be the light of the world. So this fits the rhythm of John. And secondly, I find, and this is really why I want, I decided to preach on this text, is I find that, that, that Jesus and, and his teaching here and what he does is, is consistent with who Jesus is, his teaching, his nature, his character, and most importantly, as we'll see, it is totally consistent with the gospel. The gospel is crying out of this text. So, we come back to the text and we see Jesus back at the temple the day after tabernacles. And he sits down and begins to teach. That's the normal posture of somebody in authority teaching back in those days. You would sit and teach, not stand and teach as we see today. And while he was teaching, the Pharisees and scribes, the, the, the lawyers, the scribes are lawyers, they're professional uh, law people, drag a woman caught in the act of adultery. Notice it says, in the act. And they drag her before Jesus, and they pose a question. And that's a really interesting question. They say, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses commands us to stone such women. What do you say? Now, John, one verse later, you can just see there, he explains this to us as a trap. This is the Pharisees and scribes, again, trying to trap Jesus. This is not an an honest question. They're not looking for pearls of wisdom from Jesus. That's not in their heart at all. They're not seeking to be taught. They do not care about grace. They're looking for the law. And they're looking to trap him. First, politically. They're looking to trap him politically. This is, this is very similar to the question that came up in Mark 12 when they brought a coin to him and said, okay, Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar? This is a very similar trap. Because here, if Jesus says, yes, stone her, 
he is going against Roman authority. He is usurping Roman authority. You see, Israel was an occupied nation. And under the rules of occupation at that time, they had no authority for capital punishment. No authority. They could not do that. That's why when we get to the death of Jesus, that's why Caiaphas doesn't sentence Jesus to death. He cannot carry it out. He has to go to Pilate to get Pilate to carry it out, right? And so they're trying to trap him politically here. Boy, if he, if he picks up a stone, we got him. The tax thing didn't work. The capital punishment thing will work. But there's a deeper trap that they're setting here. And that is, they're really setting a religious trap. Not just a political trap, but a religious trap. They're trying to trap Jesus between divine love and divine justice. They're wedging him right in between there, between divine love and divine justice. That's the first side of the trap. That's the first set of jaws of the trap is divine love. The scribes and the Pharisees knew that part of Jesus' popularity, part of his draw, part of why thousands of people were following him was because of his love and compassion. He ate with the fringes of society, the sinners, the tax collectors. He showed compassion and healed the sick. He touched the ceremonially unclean. He dared to treat women as equals as the woman at the well. I mean, the woman at the well, if you remember that, she's shocked that this guy is even talking to her. He treats them as equals. He taught about God's great compassion, his kindness and love. That was a a, a consistent message. He preached about forgiveness and acceptance. So the lawyers and Pharisees bring him a case that clearly calls for harsh justice, clearly calls for death. They throw before Jesus a woman caught in the very act of adultery. There's no haziness here. This woman is guilty. Deuteronomy 22.22 says, if a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. Purge the evil from Israel, it says. So the very first set of the jaws, as I said, was is would Jesus kill the law? Would his love trump justice? Would love win out over law? Would he let this woman walk? Is Jesus going to let this woman walk? What would Jesus do? Because the Pharisees knew, they had sat under his teaching, and they knew that Jesus taught from what we now call the Old Testament, which was their scriptures at the time. He taught from the scriptures. He considered those to be inspired word of God. He taught in the Sermon on the Mount that not the smallest letter will pass away until everything has been accomplished. And he even doubled down on that later when he said, listen, I've not come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill the law. In other words, he's saying, I 
Respect the law and follow the law. So what's Jesus going to do? Is he going to be the first one to pick up a rock or let the woman walk? The Pharisees had put him in that position. What are you going to do with this love thing that everybody loves you about? All this compassion, all this forgiveness that you preach, what are you going to do? Here's the law. And I think it's even a little harder than that. If you think of the followers of Jesus, just think in your mind. Here we are in the last six months, by the way, of his earthly ministry. So he's been ministering for two and a half, three years. He's had all these disciples. Think of all the stories. Think of all the people. I think, and this is not in our text, but I think maybe we little Zacchaeus has pushed his way to the front of the crowd. And he's standing there. And he's wondering, what's Jesus going to do? He's forgiven me. A thief, a cheat, a swindler. Is he going to condemn her and forgive me? Or even better, can you imagine Mary Magdalene in the crowd? Here's an adulteress worse than this woman. Repetitive, repetitive, repetitive adulteress. She's looking at this and going, is he going to pick up a stone? Is he going to pick up a rock or let her walk? She's asking the question, why condemn her and forgive me? That's the question that divine justice asks divine love. Are you going to let her walk, divine love? Or are you going to pick up a rock, divine justice? Are you going to kill the law, divine love? Or are you going to kill the queen, divine justice? And that's the conundrum. That's the other side of the jaws. That's the other side of the trap that they have Jesus in. This is a a powerful trap that they have set for him. Divine love or divine justice. And this scene is heart-wrenchingly ironic. Do you realize that? This, this, what these Pharisees and scribes are doing are heart-wrenchingly ironic. And I put it that way because they're calling Jesus to institute justice when they had no concern whatsoever for justice here. No concern whatsoever for justice. You can see that plainly here because Deuteronomy 22, if you listen closely, calls for the woman and the man. And here they just bring the woman. Now, again, James Boyce has an interesting take on this. He goes even a step deeper. And he comments in his, car- in his commentary, he says, not only the timing of this is fishy, but the fact of the, the man is not here points to the man actually being part of this plot. Can you imagine? Just never read the Bible in a vacuum. Think about it. This is real life. 
This man possibly was part of this plot, committed adultery intentionally to be caught so that this woman would be brought before Jesus at this time. That's why I say it's heart-wrenchingly and and horrifically ironic. The Pharisees did not bring her before Jesus because they were scandalized by sin at all. Because they loved the law of God? No. They didn't bring her here out of any passion to protect God's name, God's character. They were using her to get to Jesus. These men were hypocrites at the highest level, saying one thing and doing another. And that's what Jesus' question gets at. That's why Jesus asks this question. It's a question to get at the hypocritical heart. Look with me, starting in verse uh, 7. It says, But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to cast a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there with her. There's a lot of speculation, guys, on on what Jesus was writing in the sand. I mean, yeah, that's... And there's sermons preached on what did Jesus write in the sand. I mean, was he writing the, the Ten Commandments in the sand? Uh, was he writing Jeremiah 17, 16, which, which really gets at the hypocrisy of the Pharisees? The, the favorite that you hear is, is he was writing the sins of the Pharisees and scribes. Uh, I got to tell you, in I think this is a caution for all of us. I think John Calvin is right when he says, where God closes his mouth, we should desist from inquiry. There's not much I can preach to you there. He was writing in the dirt for whatever reason. I don't know what he wrote, but we do know what he said. Look at verse 7. If one of you is without sin... Let him be the first to throw a stone at her. He who is without sin cast the first stone. We know that from the King James, right? What is Jesus doing here? I'll tell you what he's not doing. He's not jettisoning the law. And I'll get get to that in a moment. He is upholding the law. What he is doing is he's dealing with these Pharisees in their hypocritical hearts. That's what this question is aimed at. In other words, it's not wrong to punish a person for a crime, but why are you doing it? That's the question Jesus is asking here. He's asking, you know the concept of the law. Do you know the concept of grace? He's really challenging them on the concept of grace. And that's the question that we have to ask ourselves All the time, brothers and sisters, we know the concept of the law, but we do really understand grace. We have to ask each other this in light of what we're learning in Sunday school. 
we're learning that we are to become a culture that keeps each other accountable. That we speak truth in love to each other. And that takes understanding law and grace. Law is easy, guys. Law is simple. Grace is hard. Law is basic. Balancing law and grace is advanced placement. It's easy to discipline a person for punishment purposes, isn't it? But where's your heart when that's going on? We must always be asking ourselves the why question. And the why question, the what question, the why question, the heart question is always two R's. How do you balance law and grace? It comes down to two R's. When you're going to a person, are you seeking them for them, true repentance before God. Not before you, but before God. And are you seeking for them to have restoration with the body? Two R's, repentance and restoration. The heart of any kind of church discipline is to deep love for the person that's snared in sin. A real understanding of law and grace. That's the whole meaning behind forgive as you've been forgiven. We all say that in the Lord's Prayer. You get the law, but do you get the grace behind that? It's the whole meaning behind do not judge lest you be judged. The law part of that is easy. Do you get the grace part of that? It's the meaning behind not taking the speck out of your your brother's eye until you realize that you have a log in your own eye. That's the question that Jesus is posing here, isn't he? First one without sin. Cast the first stone. Do you realize the log before you pluck the speck? Law is easy, but what about grace? Do you understand grace? And what that question causes is for one by one, those men to realize, start realizing grace. They start realizing their hypocritical position. And one by one, it says, starting with the oldest. Maybe there's a comment there on wisdom, I don't know. But they left. They all left. That's the, that's the point. They all realized it. And after that last person leaves, look at what Jesus says. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. He lets her go. The people leave one by one and he lets her go unpunished. The queen did not die. So... I guess the message of this passage is grace always wins out. When in doubt, 
don't punish. Thank you for that laugh. We have to be really careful here, guys. This is why this is advanced placement stuff. You have to be very, very careful. Grace never trumps law. Neither does law trump grace. Please look closely with me at at what he says to the Pharisees in verse 7. If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. If you read closely, Jesus is not casting the law aside here. Do you see that? He upholds the law. This woman is guilty of adultery. And he says, throw the first stone. Yes. He's saying she indeed deserves death. He's upholding the law, but he still lets her go. There's the question, isn't it? He's upholding the law. He's saying, yep, she deserves death. But he lets her go. Without really knowing it, the Pharisees have presented the question that needs to be answered in every person's life. How do law and grace coexist? How does divine love and divine justice coexist? How can Jesus give this woman freedom and still be a just person? You know, a lot of people, a lot of the liberal side of of the church, this is where they kind of get it wrong. They don't realize that God is perfectly just. He cannot just say, you know, I'm God, and the world has sinned, but you know what? I'm just going to jettison it, because I'm God. That's inconsistent with his character. He cannot do that. There has to be penalty. There has to be payment. He just can't, in in, in his love, say, I love the world, you're forgiven. He can't do that. The text exposes the question that needs answering in your life and in my life. How can a perfectly just God forgive sinners? And the answer is he's able to allow her to walk. This woman, he allows to walk for the same reason he allows me to walk away. For the same reason, if you've given your life to Christ, the same reason he allows you to walk away. It's the cross. That's the great escape, is the, is the cross. I don't know how many people here have read Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. We probably all know the first line of that. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. But do you know the heart of the story? I won't go into all the details, but the the central moment, one of the central moments of the book is when the Frenchman, Charles Darney, has been condemned to die by the guillotine. And Sidney Carton is an immoral English lawyer who's wasted his life 
But he loves Darnie, and he loves his wife and his child. And so at a critical moment in that book, when he learns of the, his friend being condemned to death, he decides to do something drastic. If you know the story, the night before the execution, Carton gains admission to the dungeon and changes clothes with Charles Darney. And the next day, Carton is led out and put to death in Darney's place. Darney walks because Carlton died. Freedom gained and justice fulfilled. That's the great escape that the cross allows for. That's the great perfection of God becoming man. The woman can walk free because Jesus is going to die for her. In our reading today in Romans 3, Paul put it this way, God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did that to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies Punished and the one who dies in our place. That's how divine love and divine justice can coexist. Jesus willingly walked into this trap and allowed the trap to shut on him so that we could walk free. He was born under the laws, as Galatians 4 says. He was born under the law, he fulfilled the law, he was sinless. He earned salvation. And when the Pharisees set the final trap for Jesus, what he did is he came down into our dungeon cell. And he took our clothes. And we got his clothes. And we walk free. And he goes to the guillotine. He goes to the cross. He dies in our place. And we... The adulterous people we are walk away. Mordred's question is answered. Kill the queen or kill the law? The queen is set free, us. The king dies for us, Jesus. The bride walks because the bridegroom dies. Divine justice is satisfied. He's killed for our sins. Divine love fulfilled. We walk. That's the great escape. And I want you to remember one thing just in closing. I want you to remember one thing. When you begin to hear those condemning voices, and we hear them, people. I hear them in my study. How can you stand up there, Blake, and preach this when you are so vile? When you start hearing those voices, I want you to remember Jesus' words to the adulteress here. Where are your condemners? Nothing, no condemnation is left for you. Brothers and sisters, no condemnation. When you hear those voices, it's not the voice of the lover of your soul. 
pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for your gospel and for your perfection in fulfilling divine justice and divine love. In Jesus' name, amen.